When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Brexit edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and financial collapse, which is happening as a result of the extremely bad, terrible, no good, horrible vote that happened this week in the in the United Kingdom. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you what happened, but we are going to talk about it anyway. Um, we, the short version is that there was an in-out vote. We had to decide, was Jordan Wiseman going to be on Slate Money this week <laughs> or not? And there was a vote. It was taken by um, Jordan Wiseman. And, and his editor. And, and who who blamed immigrants and or his editor <laughs> and said, no, I have to I have to be writing takes. I have no time to be faffing around on slate money. So what this means is that as of right now, we have no Jordan Weissman. It's sad. It's sad. We do have Kathy O'Neill. Yes, we do. That's amazing. Which is which is welcome. And um thankfully it's not just me and Kathy. We also have Mr. Leo Carey. Hello, Leo. Hello. 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 Um, you're, you, you do amazing things at The New Yorker. I, I do adequate things at The New Yorker. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm just doing my best as an immigrant in this country. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but you are, as we can tell from your accent, you're English. English. And is, is it true we had, we had Jim Surowiki on a few weeks ago? Are you his editor? I do edit him. I edit so what that means is that, like, now... Oh, Slate Money listeners, you get to find out who is smarter, the writer or the editor. Mm, I don't, I don't, I don't quite like the answer of that. Of that. <laughs> I, 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 I think it might might go the wrong way. Um, we will we will find out. So um, obviously, this entire episode is going to be devoted to Brexit because we have far too much to talk about to fit into one or even it's just It's not even two. clear that it will fit into one episode. Yeah, we might just have to spill over into next week as well. Felix, tell me tell me the truth. How much sleep did you get the night of the vote? So, um, so the truth is that we record this show on Friday mornings. Um, I woke up at 7... Well, I, got, I, I basically didn't get any sleep last night. Because I noticed you tweeting at... Three in the morning. I, I put up my post. I put a post up on, on Fusion, which seems to have been getting a bunch of traction about Brexit and saying that England just fucked it all up for all of us. Um, and that post went up at about 3.30 in the morning. And then I couldn't. I was so jazzed from all of that, you know, looking at screens and writing and tweeting and everything that I, I couldn't get to sleep. And then right. I woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah. So this is this is a very jazzed Felix. Wow. And okay. sleepless. So that so if I'm making little sense, it's partly because I haven't had any sleep and it's partly because I am just so sad. I was crying 
a lot. A lot last of people night. have been crying. It was a horrible, horrible thing to sit in this pub, to walk into a pub, the Churchill in on Twenty Eighth and Park, looking at the pound around one fifty, which was a six month high. And looking at all of the exit polls, which showed a you know a significant majority for Remain, and looking at um, Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, both who who are the leaders effectively of the Leave campaign, both coming out and saying, "Yeah, it looks like we've lost." And I feel like that's what England wanted to do. That the people who voted for Leave, what they wanted to do was just to protest ineffectually because. English people love ineffectual exactly. protest. <laughs> yes. And and then wake up in the morning and say, oh, the bloody Europeans, they're still in charge, and be able to still moan. Yes. Tim Montgomery, I think, tweeted, you know, I we've got so close, I, I, I almost could I almost could just like leave it here and I think we've made our point. But then, you know, you've done more than you've made your point. You've seized events and now you have to deal with them. Uh, there was a there was a uh, interviewee on the uh, uh, a leave voter on the BBC uh, today saying, um, "You know, I I voted out and now I'm now I'm really scared. I mean, I always feel like my vote doesn't count, and you know now it does. You know it does count. And d- referendums, direct, d- d- it's as if it's as if with parliamentary democracy, everyone's just driving a little car, and a referendum you have this sort of power steering, like you've just." You've just screwed it up for everyone. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of people feeling power, powerless and then suddenly being given colossal power. Being given colossal power by the single most idiotic decision that I can remember any politician making in, like, my life. David Cameron learned his lesson after he called the Scottish referendum, which was way closer than it should have been. And he's escaped by the skin of his teeth that Scotland managed to remain a part of the UK. And what he learned in Scotland was you never call a fucking referendum because you cannot predict the results. They're inherently unpredictable things. And yet somehow, because he's a moron and because he wanted some stupid little tactical advantage in the 2015 general election, which is not an important election at all, he decided to promise a referendum if he won. I mean, what was he thinking? It just seems that there's been a sort of groundswell within the Tory party asking for that for a while. And so it's finally you've got to throw these people a bone if you want to keep control of your party. And it's it's one of these things where you make a bad, you make a decision that you probably think is bad at the time, but it seems like the least worst one. And then, you, you know, he's always been lucky. Scotland went the right way. You know, he, he was looking like he might lose the last election or be with an even, you know, with in an even more precarious coalition. And, and, and you know, I think I think you he's 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 always been a gambler he's always been lucky and now he's now he's not lucky can he I mean, show guess, his face in public anywhere i i i really doubt it um i'm i'm going to jump in here and i know i'm completely outnumbered um but doesn't it, it it strikes me as like somewhat condescending to say oh th- there was a majority vote and they were all hoping not to win i mean obviously they some of those people wanted to leave the European Union. So, I mean, can we talk about what's, that's, that's what fair. happened? You know, I think there is a big issue of of, of an electorate feeling patronized by a, like, a huge swathe of the commentariat. And I actually thought, you know, in the last week or so, of the, you know, 
the, the Brexiters have been building, you know, there's been this steady drumbeat of, 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 of um, as I would see it, um, uh, fanning a sense of grievance uh, among the electorate. Uh, or, or, you know, if you're a Brexiter, you'd be just alerting to people to, you know, their options. Um, but that's been going on for years um, with extreme commitment on the, on the UKIP Brexit and, and, and Eurosceptic Tory uh, and um, importantly, the British press. The, like this was started by the Daily Telegraph, which discovered decades ago that it could sell newspapers by making up stories about how Brussels wanted to regulate the curvature of your bananas. Yeah, but I think I think we're letting ourselves we're letting ourselves off too lightly. If we want to just be like, oh, it's the stories that Boris Johnson was writing in the late nineties. Oh, look at all those Daily Mail front pages, those Daily Express pages that have got scaremongering immigrant things. I, I think you can't say that the people who voted out didn't have an authentic desire to be out. And I think but they, in, did, in, they, in the but la- the, the authentic desire was deeply linked to fear of immigration, surely. Sure. And, um, and the people not- trying to persuade them to remain never successfully addressed that. They, uh, in, in the last... In the last I, I guess the poll started looking really bad about three weeks ago. And at that point, you felt like Remain sort of having been relatively passive, kicked into a higher gear. But what their higher gear was, was just having every famous rich person say, I'm in Remain, you know, you know. Richard Branson, well, the Dave problem Beckham, was and, and you, you can't you cannot use the you truth. The, this is exactly the same as trying to run against Donald Trump. Is that like you can't? You know, the the Leave campaign says there are seventy million Turks are going to join the EU and then they're going to come into the UK. Now this is completely ridiculous. Turkey isn't anywhere close to joining the EU, but. It's a lie which is irrefutable because people want to believe it. Yeah, I, I wonder how much they even need to believe that thing. They just wanted to vote and uh, vote out. Um, you, you know, what you had against that was a, a series of extremely, you know, sedulous explanation of, um, of exactly what now, – now, now, Brexiters, listen. Listen to us. You know, we've got the figures here. Look, you see the sums. You see the sums. You see how it works. So you see it only makes sense to stay. And to tell an electorate that they're wrong – to tell an electorate that they're wrong to think what they're thinking is a recipe for electoral so disaster. if you could go back six months and be in charge of the Remain campaign, what would you do? I think you have to go back further. You, 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 have, to, you have to make a, broad, a much broader segment of English society feel an emotional investment in Europe. Because ultimately, you know, people, people when they're, when they're um, g- g- going to vote, you know, they may have a particular issue. They may have some stats in mind. But, you know, here we are on slate money in a kind of the heart of the sort of technocratic kind of, you know, it's all about, you know, markets or what are the betting markets say or what does, what does the street think? You know, actually, people make very emotional decisions when they vote. And if you can't connect with them on that level, it's, it's no use complaining, you know, and saying, well, you know, it was a, it was a appalling campaign they ran. They, you know, it, and, 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 you know, I think absolutely, you know, Farage's, um, Farage's uh, final anti-immigration post was a, a, a shameful thing and you felt awful to, to see it and to be British. But um, there's, there's, no, there's no point in just sticking your hand up and saying, ref, ref, you know, that's a foul. There is, you know, this, you, you have to engage an electorate on the terms on which it wants to be engaged. And, and I think there's a massive some, failure to do that. This is something which I've, I've said on Slate Money 
many times in the past and surely will many times in the future is that when economics runs into politics, politics always wins. Yes. That what we had was, you know, the OECD and the Chancellor of the Exchequer and all of these, like, you know, as, as Michael Gove famously said, like experts yeah. um, saying, you're going to have a recession if you do this. And everyone was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And also going to bring up the markets. Like the markets totally were surprised by this. And I ju- okay, so I need to – before we talk a little bit about the, the political implications in, in, the, um, in the UK and the EU, we do need to mention the crazy that happened in the markets on Thursday night. That after mm. hitting a six-month high of 150 to the – $150 to the pound, the pound then managed to collapse in the space of just a couple of hours, basically, to about 132 something like that. This is unprecedented in, you know, living memory. I, this is, I saw someone on Twitter calling this a 16 Sigma move, which <laughs> Kathy is going to laugh at because she knows that means, you know, that's like, it doesn't happen in the course of the lifetime of like a hundred universes. But well, that's assuming a random walk. This was anything but a random walk. But, we all yeah. knew something was going to happen. But so this, the market volatility and has been crazy. The ten-year bond yield is now down to like the lowest it has ever been in the U.S. There's been this crazy flight to safety. The yen is super strong. This Japanese stock market is super weak. Why is the Japanese market down like, right now as of Friday morning, like almost 10%? Well, I, I don't get that. It's partly because the yen, because there was this huge flight to, flight to safety right. in the yen, which has strengthened the yen, which has made Japan much less competitive. Okay. Mm. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So now... Let's talk a little bit more about the politics. Yeah. Um, because we have Leo here who, who understands this stuff and is, is much more um, – keeps, keeps in much closer touch with UK politics than I do. Though actually I would like to just say, um, you know, I've lived here for almost 19 years and I think part of the fallacy is to assume that you know your country. I think I think people who have not left England and stayed there during those 19 years are waking up and feeling the same thing. But, you know, England has got such a powerful identity and it's so cosy and it's got a sense of humor and, you know, these beautiful little, you know, beautiful countryside. And it always just seems like it's sort of eternally going to remain the same. And you, you, you can, as an expatriate, lose sight of the fact that it's a highly dynamic society, um, even just to think um, – of, 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 you know, how different London looks from when I left. But that kind of dynamism is exactly why so many of us were reasonably complacent about the fact that it was going to go to, to remain in. That I like reasonably complacent. That's a very, very interesting locution. <laughs> um, because there is, you know, there is a complacency in reason. There's complacency in being right. There's a complacency in being we have the facts on our side. We'll just lay them out. Um, and people will listen. But the, but also when you when you see dynamism, when you see immigration, when you see change, when you see an economy being 
driven off of the input of people from all over the world and London being this incredible global city. And of course, London voted overwhelmingly to remain. Um, For the outskirts, I mean, Watford, you know, the, 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 the leave came much closer to the centre of London and, you know, that whole Thames Estuary region, which but, is a So, so the belt, question you know, which I have for you is is really like when you're saying that we aren't really plugged into to the changes that are happening in England, are you saying that there was a change in the opposite direction and there was a change to the, a much more sort of little England conservatism, which somehow we missed? I do think there has been that change, but it's based on things that are so anecdotal that I would feel kind of embarrassed to say them into a microphone. Um, uh, it's, um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think, think if you're, you know, obviously every day you go, you go online and you see what The Guardian's saying and you see what The Telegraph is saying and, you, you know, you look at the mail site. And so you, you sort of, you know, you look around and you feel you've got a good spread of the opinion, but it's different from having you know, a front page that lands on your on your doormat each day and tells you something that's a steady drip. And tells and so, you that the immigrants are coming to destroy the country, basically. Yeah. That I mean, and we can't, I can't emphasize this enough. Like, for all the analysis, ultimately, this really did come down to uh, vote about immigration and then vote against immigration, even though I hasten to add, there is absolutely no reason to believe that leaving the EU will reduce immigration. Can, no, I, can of- I jump in here? Um, you know, I've been looking at the demographics of the vote and I'm just going to echo what Leo said a little bit that, you know, the people that voted to remain were educated, they were cosmopolitan, they were richer. They are, in fact, the people that we hear when we when we listen. Right. Yeah. They're 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 louder mouthed um, than the people who voted that are disgruntled. They're poorer. Um, they're older, and they they're in the suburbs essentially. Um, so that's that's an important thing. It's a selection bias for what the information that leaks to to our brains. Even who if gets hurt? even yes. if you were in London, that would ha- that would be an effect, right? Even if you mm-hmm. actually lived in the UK, it's not clear that you would hear those voices. Just as we don't in the United States really understand exactly what's happening in, in the rural south. And, uh, but there are so many parallels here. The Republican Party barely exists anymore. And is it not the case, Leo, that the Tory party is tearing itself apart in a similar way? And, Both parties. And, the and splits indeed, are everywhere. The, the, and this is the real shocker to me. This is the thing where I, where I was like rubbing my eyes and said, I can't believe it. There was no single return of the election which shocked me as much as seeing that a substantial large majority of Tory MPs voted for leave Mm -hmm. despite the fact that the official Tory party position was to remain. Yeah and I'll jump in again because I'm not British okay I, I acknowledge that but one of the things that I've I've talked to a bunch of people about the Brexit vote and like the Greek friends I have are very conflicted and it's not because of immigration for that. Well, it's partly because of immigration, but it's also partly because of the way they see the lack of democracy firsthand uh, living in Greece. But the Greeks, you know, essentially had that 
in out vote and voted to stay in. Yeah, yeah, they did. And but I'm just saying and, they and are Yanis Varoufakis was like doing tours of the UK saying stay in. Stay I'm just in. saying there are more issues than immigration. Yeah, and it's true. I actually think that the you know compared to Greece, which when that when when that vote was taken was you know a basket case. You know England is quite comfortable. And it doesn't. It's forgotten what real crisis feels like, and I think it's about to find out. You take a leap in the dark. You know, people maybe feel that desperate, or they don't have a voice, or something. But I, th- I think people with a, a, a keener sense of what, say, twenty five percent unemployment would look like. You know, people voting in that country think about think about these things uh, considerably more seriously. Yeah, in that sense, I think that they're, they were just slightly disgruntled, not compared to Greece, but slightly disgruntled. And then they were told they were wrong, as yeah. you mentioned. That's not, that doesn't feel good. So it became a proxy for everything they felt frustrated by, Precisely. right? And, 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 and leave never really had to give any sense of what they were going – you know, there is no plan. There is no plan. And uh, to be honest, I mean, there's this thing called Article 50, which mm. technically allows the country to leave the European Union. Obviously, no one has ever invoked it. Um, it needs to be called by the government which of the country which is leaving. David Cameron has said that he's not going to fucking do it, which means he's going to resign. He's going to be replaced by someone else. The person who replaces him is going to have to do it, or maybe there's going to be a general election. Like I, I mean, I have to say, like somewhere deep in my heart, I hold out some hope that parliament is going to come to its senses and just refuse to invoke article 50 and refuse to leave yeah it's hard to see how the politics of that works now it could work gradually because i think what what the brexit campaign was promising was essentially an impossibility if they're given power eventually people will become pissed off with them but it's not clear that that can happen quick enough to prevent the article 50 trigger being pulled which creates a timeline of two years to exit perhaps the most interesting question and for the next week or two is what does the establishment do now because let's not kid ourselves the people in charge of the brexit campaign are also the establishment i feel that like if you're boris johnson or or, or gove you've got two days of euphoria and then you are shitting yourself because <laughs> you, you not only did you drive the car off the cliff you now have to remain in the car and try and get it somewhere and make people feel that they're better off than they were Leo, with market you, turmoil all around you. Do, you. do you think that Boris Johnson is going to be the next prime minister? I don't think I've got a special insight. I think, I think it does seem that he is, everything he has done has been uh, uh, aimed at this and I think it is highly likely. But I think also within the Tory party um, – I, I get the sense that people might try and rally around someone who seems like less of a less of a show pony. Like maybe Theresa May will have more support within the party. You know, it's not like an it's not like a, a you know a, a U.S. presidential campaign is essentially an entrepreneurial act. Like anyone can go for the nomination, whereas you know leadership battles in England happen within a party structure. So the guy who's so, so, so the guy who's to, on just, TV most often might not be actually be the guy who's in the strongest <laughs> position. No, and just to explain here, because most of our listeners have not grown up in a parliamentary democracy, um, the way the the party leader is chosen in the UK is literally just by, well, in the Tory party anyway, is by a vote of the MPs in Parliament. The people have no say. So interesting. And it's just the Tory MPs get to choose their leader. So, 
yeah, there, Which there's seems no, fair, uh, I think, you know, <laughs> in a way. Uh, the, 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 the Labour Party, of course, has a very different system and managed to elect, you know, a crazy person as its leader, which didn't help in the campaign because the Labour, Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, no one really believed that he was um, particularly pro-Remain. Yes, yeah, so I think that's, that, that touches on a very interesting thing, which is that the sort of multidimensional splits that seem to be in every faction here. I read somewhere a statistic that, you know, 45% of, of Labour membership was for out. And, you know, obviously... It's, it, you know, in the northeast, it, it's those old sort of industrial heartlands that have been kind of treading water for 20, 30 years with the decline of industrialization that have switched from a kind of old left class based mentality to, you know, moving towards uh, a UKIP uh, rightist mentality. And I don't think that 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 vote will come back to Labour. I think that's that's this, is, this is the same weird thing that we see in the UK with people vacillating between Bernie and Trump, right? Um, so, yeah, but, but yeah, can exactly. You, can but, you? Um, but, but, but what, what I was going to say is, yeah. so you've got that split. You've got, as it were, new Labourites who are urban and you know neoliberal and you know take their holidays abroad, and then you've got old Labour, which has 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 felt like you know there's been nothing in it for me since Blair took over, since even even maybe before, since since maybe the departure of Kinnock, um, and and then in the Tory Party you have a similar split, which is between you know urban kind of, you know, markets good, you know, uh, um, essentially economic conservatives, and then something that's far more sort of, you know, atavistic and chthonic that's sort of related to sort of a sense of like England's sort of eternal specialness. And it it split that way. And what I think is most interesting now is actually Brexit has a split too. Obviously, most of it is nativist. Most of it is um, anti-immigration and highly protectionist in the way that you see with Bernie's supporters and Trump. But Boris is the opposite. Yes. And the theory that the very, very few economists who think things will get better are all, you know, complete free market uh, uh, fundamentalists, they're like, we're much better like negotiating contracts, you know, outside the EU. We'll just, we'll, we'll sail our little skiff more nimbly rather than just sitting on that sort of EU tanker. We can like be like, hey, India, want to do a deal? Uh, China, want to do a deal? And like, you know, so that, that is, that is the thinking there. And you just know, yes, you know that Boris, and the guy who voted for his campaign in bumfuck, wherever it, bumfuckshire, you know, you know that those two, those two people have a completely different idea of what this thing is going to look like. So, and there will be great anger when the people who voted for this find that it does not achieve what they wanted. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. 
And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Now I want to move on to this, the question of how does this look from the outside and what does this mean for the people who didn't vote for it, which means um, Europe, which means the US. But let me start first with a kind of more interesting one, which is Scotland. Scotland voted completely, 100%, every single um, county in Scotland voted to remain. Can you explain to me what's going on there? Why is Scotland so different than the Northern England? I don't know. I think that Again, it comes down to an emotional thing. You've got an identity that is Scottish and that is highly proud of being Scottish, even if it voted to remain in the UK at the at the referendum. Um, it's highly – people have a sense of pride. It's not clear to me that in the North, which used to have a very – a very firm sense of pride. That pride's kind of been kicked out of you if you're in the north of England. You know, your economic circumstances, you know, one side of, 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 of the border might not be that different. But the way you feel perhaps about your identity, uh, you, you cannot discount just the sort of resentment of London uh, and the fact that... And this is, I think, the key, is that the English get to resent Brussels. The Scots don't need to resent Brussels because they can just resent <laughs> London. Um, and no, I think this is and, you a know, really got, important. You know, dynamic. a degree of self-government. You know, you've got your own. You've got your. You know, the northeast doesn't have its own regional parliament. So, know. so, but let's 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 move out one level here. What are the Germans thinking? What are the French thinking? What is the rest of Europe thinking this morning? I th I think that what they have to be thinking is how do we proceed do we in other words play hardball with england and be like take it or leave it you know you've made your bed now lie in it or are they in other words will or, or will they try everything they can to keep it together in other words will they negotiate from a position of essentially punitive vindictiveness or suddenly scared um, flexibility. But and they I think, have to be punitive, don't they? Otherwise, well, every other country is going to vote Yeah, to it's leave. a moral hazard issue. There is a moral hazard issue. But, I mean, today, Juncker, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, was immediately, you know, there can be no negotiation. I'm sad, but it's done. But Donald Tusk, very, very different. Like, kind of, let me see what I can do here. Let me get back to you. And even if, even if it doesn't, which probably won't, happen sufficiently speedily to um, uh, get England not to leave. I think you know that the, the um, you know if this vote had been taken yesterday in France. It would very likely have gone the same way. I mean, I feel like Pandora's box has been opened now, and it's very hard to close it. It's going to be very hard for the French government to refuse a referendum. It's going to be hard for the Spanish to refuse referendums mm -hmm. for like both independence within Spain and from the EU, and that. What we're going to see now is a series of votes to leave because I don't think that even half of the current countries in the EU would vote to remain if they had a vote like this. I've, I've got less of a sense of it than you maybe on that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, it was, it was occurring to me that, you know, the, 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 the critiques of European institutions are completely well-founded. It is highly top-down. It isn't uh, answerable uh, 
It's not very democratically answerable, partly, of course, because national governments wanted to keep that democratic relationship to their individual electorates. And if it were more um, democratic, it would have posed a more direct challenge to national government much earlier. Um, But at this point, the EU is kind of like Microsoft Word. You know, there's a lot of it's bulky. It doesn't do exactly what you want. If we were writing this application today, we wouldn't do it like this. But how can you how can you unpick it and reform it within the current structure and on what looks like an absolutely emergency timeline. Right, exactly. Like It would have been almost impossible to reform the EU even if we had voted to remain because of all of the structural problems there. But once we voted for leave, now it's just unthinkable. Yes, it was an impossible task in either sense, but now it's an impossible task while someone's holding a gun to your head. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, I heard someone on the radio saying it's like Merkel has been kicking the can down the road and now the can has stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, like what could could possibly happen at this point to prevent this cascade of people of, of nations leaving? What could they even offer? So I want to ask you, Kathy, I mean, just broadening this out, one new level is the view from the U.S. It has struck me living here in America that Americans – really weren't paying a lot of attention to this up until the vote itself. I totally agree. I think most Americans think that, uh, you know, don't really know the difference between the Eurozone and the European Union and knew that there was Probably still a, a pound. Probably quite a lot of Europeans don't either. <laughs> well, they knew there was still a pound and that it wasn't on the Euro system. And then they kind of, oh, there's some, there's something else, you know. So it wasn't uh, big on the list. And, and you know, I know that people say it's going to be bad for the U.S., but at the same time, it, it, uh, look at the markets. They're not down that much for the U.S., and people are going to f- – they're going to flee to the American things. The stock market things. isn't down yeah. that much, but the, the, the scary thing is that the bond market is up that much. The scary thing is that we've now – we're seeing right now exactly what we saw in 2008, 2009, which is this huge – flight to quality trade. Yes. And, you know, we have the 10-year bond yield at unprecedentedly low levels. Um, we have Janet Yellen and the Fed basically saying, we were all set to raise rates, but now all bets are off. Right, because right. there's a good chance that, put it this way, if the UK enters a significant recession, as it probably will, that and and if Europe is entering two years or more of extreme uncertainty and economic uncertainty, and, and Europe is not exactly an economic powerhouse right now in terms of economic growth, that could turn negative. All of Europe could go into recession. If all of Europe goes into recession, that then impacts the U.S. It's bad for the U.S. economy, and suddenly the Fed is like, yeah, I don't think we're raising rates. I, I mean, it's now zero rates as far as the eye can see Everywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's not good, obviously. One of the things I'm interested in looking at is the extent to which, like, London is the financial center of Europe in a certain way, right? There's so much going on in the in in finance in London. And to the extent that the the United States has a huge financial industry, which it does, it connects to Europe basically through London. Like, what's going to happen with that? I saw a headline. Yes. Like, already I saw Morgan Stanley. 2,000 people to Dublin or Frankfurt. Yes, exactly. And it's, you know, this has been a threat for a long time. Like, you know, it's every election, like, you know, if, if, if someone, you know, too hostile to the city of London gets in, you know, people will just leave, you know, um, because, of course, you know, 
capital is global. It can, it's just very, very mobile. But, you know, the people who work might, you know, have a house and their kids in school. And you wonder how mobile these people are. And we're about to find out. We are. I mean, financial capitals, it, it, it is quite common for them to be in small little island, you know, Singapore's and Hong Kong's and Dubai's and stuff like that. You don't. But but certainly, I mean, it's inarguable that the primacy of London as a global financial center is is absolutely a function of the fact that the UK is a central member of the EU. And if that's no longer the case, then, yeah, a lot of those jobs are going to move to Frankfurt. And but that's not even the main problem. I mean, if 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 a bunch of bankers move from London to Frankfurt, who the yeah, fuck cares? I think for I mean, many seriously. people who voted, that's a, the, that, the that's, feature that's rather a feature than a bug. Not a bug, exactly. Like yeah, you know, it means. I mean, if if house prices in in London come down, that's good. How do it we depends. Get- it depends. You know, I mean, like the you know, in London, you have to be terrified that house prices will fall and really hope that they fall simultaneously because clearly it's not sustainable. But you know, the the basic English middle class is is highly invested in housing and and. Uh, it apart, apart from, I suppose, a generation that hasn't managed to get on the housing ladder. You, you know, if 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 you if you let house prices fall in England, you are dead politically. Well, okay, but it, and, it could fall. Lo- it could fall insolvent. locally. It could fall. The, the housing prices could. Yeah, get but more reasonable there's a London. lot of southern England. I mean, that's not just locally. If London falls, you and know. and and the London sort of you know, surroundings fall, yeah. which is where the biggest bubble has been, yeah, exactly. then I fear to think you know, what all, the solvency of the UK banks would look like. All, right, all, right. The, all, all those, you know, you know, York was becoming a commuter town to London. The, tr- the train service is pretty good, you know. Um, uh, Oxford, where I'm from, is the, is, uh, if you take incomes to property, is the most unaffordable city in England because it's essentially becoming a dormitory for London. There'll be a huge kind of letting of this air out of the balloon if 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 um if London if London prices start to fall, I think you know and other places around it will fall faster. Every single property in the UK has already fallen in value by fifteen percent. You know, if you if you're just looking in dollar terms, if you're looking in currency <laughs> terms, yes. And people are in fact talking about a, a mini bubble. As, as, as opportunistic foreign money comes in, you know, in the next weeks while the, while the, while sterling is depressed, that actually you could see in the upper end of the property market, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying I'm, that I'm, one. I'm, I'm, I'm an oligarch and, you know, I was kind of like going each, you know, either way on this sort of penthouse and like, you know, actually it's come down in pro, uh, my, it's my, it's good. Good. yeah, it's true. Like, if, if you're a Russian, if you're a Russian buyer, man, that thing just got 15% cheaper. I mean, I looked at this. This is my, I, this is my favorite thing, by the way, of, of, of the, the, the market crazy was that the pounds fell by about seven or eight percent against the Zimbabwean dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the pound graph, and it really—I mean, yes—it's lower than it's been for a long time, but it's not that much lower than it was right after the 2008 crisis. It's not like plummeting beyond rem- memory or anything. It's, it's at a 30-year low. Yeah, but it's been there is, a few times. It went from a six-month high to a 30-year yeah. low. No, it was in, dramatic. In, no question. In the space of hours, like that's just crazy pants. And we don't know where it's going to we end. We don't know where it's going to end. Like, it might be different by this tomorrow. Is, this is – no, but this also – I mean it could easily – and in fact, I would go so far as to say probably will turn out to be a Lehman Brothers situation. That 
on September the 15th, you know, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, the markets went down in this kind of like stomach churning way. And everyone said, wow, that was nasty. And yeah. then over the subsequent six months, it got so much worse. Yes. And that's why, you know, in my piece um, after, after the Brexit, I wrote that things are going to get worse before they get worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which, and, and, you know, which... I hope is false. I hope that somehow, but right now I have to say, and I think Leo agrees with me, that, that it's really hard to see any silver lining to this cloud. There's very little upside. In fact, there's no upside to this. Not, not for England, not for the UK, not for Europe, not for the globe, for no one. No one is winning from this. Not even Boris Johnson is winning from this. Not even Nigel fucking Farage is winning from this. Everyone is losing. I think Farage is winning, but up, up, <laughs> up to there, I'm with you. Um. You know what? I'm going to, I just want to do this. I've never done this before, but I'm going to read a letter to the editor of the FT, which has been tweeted a bunch. And I just, it was such a great um, note on the FT website. A quick note on the first three tragedies, and this is actually the point that like there are so many tragedies here, and this this guy just managed to come up with three off the top of his head. First, it was the working classes who voted for us to leave because they were economically disregarded, and it is they who will suffer the most in the short term from the death of jobs and investment. They have merely swapped one distant and unreachable elite for another one. Secondly, the younger generation has lost the right to live and work in 27 other countries. We will never know the full extent of the lost opportunities, friendships, marriages, and experiences we will be denied. Freedom of movement was taken away by our parents, uncles, and grandparents in the parting blow to a generation that was already drowning in the debts of our predecessors. Thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, we now live in a post-factual democracy. When the facts met the myths, they were as useless as bullets bouncing off the bodies of aliens in an H.G. Wells novel. When Michael Gove said the British people are sick of experts, he was right. But can anybody tell me the last time a prevailing culture of anti-intellectualism has led to anything other than bigotry? That is the England that we woke up to this morning, a little confined England where you can't just move to France if you fancy, like, you know, I mean, oh, it's just the worst. I think anyway. not, but, you know, not enough people um, were experiencing the upside of the optionality of moving to France, and that's why they voted as they did. And uh, I think that the sense of uh, an us and them sense, which I, you know, as it were, naturally, my, my, my feed is all people like being, who are these fuckers who fucked it up? But, you know, that, that rather justifies the, the opinion of those fuckers that these stuck-up elites pay them no mind, pay them no respect. There is, there is no, there's, no, there's no neutral position in this. Um, it's true. Like, I, I have talked to a bunch of people about Brexit, and the one thing which I've never found is someone go. Eh. I don't really have an opinion on Brexit. <laughs> I, I talked to an economist who was like, who was like, you know, he was Greek, which may be may or may not be significant. <laughs> it he is. Was like, he was. It he is. was like, you know, I think it will come out pretty much a wash. I think they'll, you know, that they'll negotiate the contracts again, and you know, they'll, that 
that what what makes sense as a sort of level they'll be roughly the same you know it'll be a lot of a lot of work but i don't think it will fundamentally change anything which is like a kind of you know I, I, that, that's the best case scenario right now a collision between a chinese jet and an american spy plane he came and rammed into our left wing with relations increasingly strained what are the chances of things spinning out of control the western world was asleep I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kathy. Yes. Number. Do you have one? I do. Uh, Having nothing to do with Brexit. A little break for people. Um, $10 million, which was... A incredibly pathetic and paltry fine that the SEC levied against Merrill Lynch for lying to its uh, retail investors about a structured product, where basically they they divulged that um, there, that it was at least six percent um, of any kind of profits over a five year period would be pocketed by them, but then they failed to mention that. Actually, also there was another charge of one point five percent every quarter. Um, so, ten million dollars. I mean, this is the this is the way the SEC wins, is that they 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 find um, Merrill Lynch like less than is is actually noticeable by Merrill Lynch for doing something that probably screwed just a whole ton of people. I mean, ten million dollars is is the bonus that most Merrill Lynch currency traders just made in one day for, on, for on selling this product to one person. Or something. Um, my 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 number, and I I could have so many, but the one which jumped out at me during that long dark night of the Brexit was um, the Google Trends tweet saying that there was a 500% that's my number 500% spike in searches for buy gold over the course of 4 hours <laughs> Mm. Or how do how do we how do I like move to Ireland? I this is this is this is definitely a kind of you know stock up on canned goods kind of you know scenario that we're living in here. That you know this is extreme, but yes, yes, Leo. My, my number is three hundred and fifty million pounds. The worst number. The worst number and a false number. But this is a very important number in the in the Leave campaign because that's what the UK's weekly fee to the uh, to the EU has been. And a, 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 a um a you know in a way that sort of makes perfect sense. You know the Leavers were like you know three hundred and fifty million a week. That that might come in handy. What we just imagine what we could do with that. We they could had, give it to the National Health the, Service. The nas- that was the thing. Which, to which we will pay yeah lip service to caring about. Um, there was a big red poster with an electrocardiogram sort of blip on it saying, "Let's give our NHS the three hundred fifty million the EU takes every week. Vote Leave. Vote uh, take control." Now. The number has always been false because it's it's sure it's what's paid to the EU each each week, but it doesn't take account of what comes back from the EU, which is uh, an eighty five million dollar pound a week uh, rebate that was negotiated by Margaret Thatcher in nineteen eighty five, and EU subsidies to British farmers, to the poor regions that have voted Leave, like in in the Welsh valleys, and to British business. Once you take that into account, you've got um, only a net payment of one hundred thirty six million. So the head of the Leave campaign, who who ironically is originally German, um, said, you know, this will be for the NHS, but it's a non existent amount of money. And today, before seven o'clock, before probably. Half the voters for leave had woken up. Nigel Farage, 
was on TV saying that, well, obviously, no, no there isn't 350 million. <laughs> oh. No, there isn't. You know, he, I can't guarantee that number, he said, was a mistake. And he said, how? And then, oh, uh, I'm sorry. Sky. It was a mistake. Holy no, that's a mistaken shit. number. And, Amazing. And so I just think this is the number to end all numbers because it shows, uh, as, as your FT comment uh, guy says the post the post fact nature of 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 politics the the bad faith in which that number was adduced and even i think with which it was received because i think a lot of leavers are like you know it was it was it was debunked again and again and again and again through the campaign and i think many 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 leavers probably got the message okay well that's numbers not right Sure, but I, th- I think we'll get something. It was probably a lot of people's kind of grocky thinking as they as they voted. So it's just it's, it's just it's a number that makes you realise the limits of numbers in this whole sphere of like human activity. It's not about facts. <sighs> no. So I I um, encourage all you slate money listeners to go out there and um, drink a lot. I brought some scotch just to celebrate. It, it is there. true. Kathy brought some scotch in, which and, I think I might I be helping myself to. What I would say is try to understand the people that you fear, because there's an election coming here, and you don't you don't want to have a strange, unmanageable, populist result that's anti-elite. And I know we don't talk about domestic politics here, but that's. <laughs> But, but yes, it's absolutely the, true. The, the, the T word. The T the, word the looks scary. The, sca- the scary, like, red-faced blonde man, like, you know. Touching might, down might, in Scotland just in time for the Might be the next prime minister of the UK or might be the oh. next president of the US. Either one. I'm not sure which one is scarier. Um, it's, it's a good year for blonde. So all I can do is say thank you to Emily Rubin and to Audrey Quinn, who produced this episode, to Steve Lichtai and Annie Bowers, the executive producers of Slate Money, to the entire Panoply universe, iTunes.com slash Panoply. And I feel, honestly, that maybe if we're looking for any silver linings here, that it is this, that now it is going to become even easier for Panoply to snaffle up all of those great BBC radio producers to come over here and work in New York and earn some dollars and create awesome podcasts because they have no future in that benighted aisle. Most of all, of course, thank you to Leo Carey of The New Yorker, who not only was much more intelligent than either Jim Sirowicki or Jordan Weissman, but also managed to use the word chthonic, which really ought to be used in every single podcast. I'm seriously looking that up. I'm looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so well done, uh, Mr. Mr. Chthonic, Leo Carey. Uh, you can't get by in England without that concept. It's true. It's true. I, I managed to use the word gormless in my... In oh, my, another in, key English which concept. Is, which yeah, which is a great word to use. But we will try and use more such words on future episodes when we talk to you next week and beyond on Slate. Oh, wait. I must... I have to mention one last thing. Keep those emails coming. Slate money at slate.com. Kathy is rolling her eyes. She's like, I'm getting too many emails. <laughs> I love the emails. I just, as a data person, I want there to be some kind of structure, some if, format. If there's anyone who's listening to this who wants to um, volunteer to crunch all of the data from the numbers for, of the emails you've been sending in of your favorite podcast, we really appreciate those emails, but we need someone to we need be an able intern, to... Basically. We need an intern to basically read through all of those emails and quantify which 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 podcasts are your favorite favorite. Anyway, come back next week. We will talk to you with more Slate Money. <laughs> 